song of invitation will be 853-853. I'd like to say good morning to each of you here today. We miss those that are not among us, but I'm glad to see so many faces this morning. We have a great crowd. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here, and I hope you are too. The opportunity word this morning. I hope that this message will edify, will strengthen, will comfort you. You can draw some strength from the message of the day. This morning, I want to talk to you about submission to Jesus Christ. So I want to invite your attention to the book of Luke, chapter number 5. We'll read a few verses there in just a moment. So you might open your Bibles or your Bible apps and prepare to follow along this morning. We have studied growth and development in recent weeks. Growth and development of discipleship. Growth and development as Christians. We've spent some time in recent weeks studying from the book of 2 Peter. Uh, We've heard wonderful messages about growth and about development. Uh, And not just on Wednesday night, but I want to continue this theme uh, of growth and and development in a deliberate way by focusing on the growth and development of the apostles and the early disciples, beg pardon, specifically through the lens of the journey narrative in the Bible. And so you can see my intention uh, in the next few Sundays whenever I have a speaking appointment and, and God willing, I am able to present a message over God's Word. I want to address these specific areas as it relates to growth and development, specifically uh, as we consider the growth and development of the early disciples. But I want to look at that through the journey narrative that we encounter in Scripture And so what is the journey narrative? And I'm not just talking about the the exodus, that journey from, you know, Egypt all the way to the promised land. I'm talking about uh, literal and metaphorical journeys here. And so I invite your consideration this morning. Uh, Just a a quick couple of examples. We could turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse number 12. We read there of a literal journey that the disciples make from Uh, one place to another. We go to the end of the book of Acts and we read a literal journey there about one of the apostles on his way to Rome. And so the book of Acts really bookends itself with a journey narrative. But if we we step back from that and we look even from a, a broader perspective, we can see that Jesus himself went on a journey. He descended from his heavenly home. He confined himself to a nine month gestation period And then he grew as a human being until he went to the cross on our behalf and finally ascended back into heaven. And so we can see this journey narrative permeate Scripture. It saturates Scripture. And so with that as the backdrop, I want to consider this morning submission from from self to surrender, but specifically through that lens. In my previous sermon about self-examination, I proposed three distinct ways to accomplish that self-examination, and one of those ways was by looking in the mirror of God's Word. And so this morning I want to dive further, but more specifically into God's Word, looking at a microcosm of this journey narrative that revolves around some of the early disciples. And so I would ask you this morning, how would you describe discipleship? 
Certainly we recognize that not everyone who claims to be a disciple of Christ, a disciple, is one. There are various levels of commitment that we might consider uh, evident among those who profess to be followers of Christ. We see this illustrated in the world of sports. Many here this morning are avid sports fans. Maybe you wouldn't classify yourself as a fanatic, uh, which is just an abbreviation uh, for fan, maybe just a sports enthusiast. But there are fans, right, who might watch a game on the telly, uh, who might uh, go to a game uh, to the court, to the field, and watch a game once in a while, and they consider themselves to be sports fans. But then there are the more committed sports fans who tailgate, and they go all out, and they paint themselves, and they go half-naked into the field so that they can celebrate their team and their team's accomplishments. And so they consider themselves committed to the team and committed uh, to sports. They'll, they'll drive everywhere. They'll spend their own money to support those efforts. And so a question I would ask you this morning is, what level of commitment does God require from me? What level of commitment does God require of us? And so I want to investigate and hopefully answer this question as we consider the book of Luke chapter 5 and the first 11 verses. And I will try to have all the verses there on the screen so you can follow along, but I encourage you to read for yourself from the precious Word of God this morning. The book of Luke chapter 5, beginning here in verse number 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed him to hear the Word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net brake. In verse 7, they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. And so here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. It's known by many different names. But that will give you an idea of the area that's under consideration here in this passage this morning. And so there it is. It's a pretty huge lake. And we're talking about commercial fishermen. And so here's a picture of, of, of an artist or a photographer's rendition of what maybe a net would look like outstretched from a boat. I'm not exactly sure how Peter and these other fishermen actually lowered their nets into the water. Maybe it was just by hand, maybe the accompaniment of some tool like we see here in this photograph. But they were fishermen, and Jesus calls these individuals to follow him. 
And here, more specifically, the text really does focus on Simon Peter, on his answer, on his response, on his action. And I want to look at that this morning. You know, when I read the accounts of Jesus' calling of his apostles, I really marvel at the conciseness of his words and the success of his efforts. It seems that Jesus did not, le- did not need long, drawn-out uh, explanations of his intentions or, or long, drawn-out, detailed agendas to motivate his would-be disciples. And I marvel at that. With just a few words, Jesus can elicit a response. <clears throat> These people were receptive to Jesus. Are we receptive to Jesus in the 21st century? You know, one lesson that fishermen learn early in their career is that you do not catch fish every day. So some of you who are avid fishermen, avid, avid fishers here of, of fish in the audience, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I can certainly fall into that category. I've, I've caught less than I wanted, uh, but uh, it's still fun. Some days are a bust, and you might as well come in early and clean the boat. And so this seems to be the situation here. Peter and his companions, they'd already been fishing. Hours. Peter says, we've been toiling all the night, right? However many hours that is. And then they're back at the dock, they're back at the shore washing their nets. I would ask you this morning, thinking about the chore of fishing, we we may have difficulty figuring out as commercial fishermen just how, how challenging that is, how labor-intensive that is. And so I would ask you to think about an activity or a task that you have had to complete in the course of your life that you just didn't want to do. <clears throat> Maybe it was something at home, something, you know, a chore that you had to complete because nobody else was going to do it, nobody else could do it maybe, a chore that you had to complete, a task that you had to complete. When I was a child, mine was mowing the grass and I don't know how many of you have, have riding lawnmowers, but I can assure you that I never had access to a riding lawnmower. I know the benefit of a riding lawnmower. And you can ask my brother Shane here today that we had a three horsepower push mower that we really couldn't let go of the handle because it would either burn out or the ball bearings would, would blow out to the side. We, we had about an acre and a quarter to mow that way, and so we had to take turns. I dreaded it. I, and, and in East Texas, let's get real here, in Paris, Texas, where we grew up, the grass grows, I mean, almost like that. Uh, in certain many months out of the year, it seems, it just continues to grow. And so when I was pretty young, even before I was a teenager, I was out there with a push mower <clears throat> mowing the grass. And so for you, maybe it was some, some dirty little job that nobody wanted to do. Maybe it was, maybe it was just kind of thrown your way, placed in your lap. Okay, well, now it's my responsibility. Now I need to, to get, get after it, as they say, and do this. Perhaps it was just out of a sense of obligation or of duty. You volunteered, perhaps. And maybe you didn't realize uh, all the aspects of that, of that job. Maybe you did the job out of respect for the person who asked you. <clears throat> whatever the reason, whatever the job, we've all had to perform tasks that we just thought, ugh. This is not for me anymore, I'm ready to give up, I'm ready to be done, and I'm ready to move on. Go kick back in the Barca lounger and and sip on a Coca-Cola while I watch an episode of The Chosen or something. That's kind of what our mindset is sometimes when we encounter these tasks, these jobs, these chores. And maybe that's the situation here. 
This is a scene that presents itself in these verses here in Luke chapter 5. And Simon Peter, he's called upon to complete a task that he doesn't want to do. We see that he does it. He complies with the request of Christ, but he doesn't want to do it. You know, after this public... And so here's a picture of nets, an artist's rendering, a photographer's rendering of what those nets might have looked like. They were back at the shore washing their nets, probably mending their nets. They might have had them spread out over the shore like this while they're waiting for them to dry. That's more than a few nets there, brethren. And so I imagine that they had to had, had quite, quite a few nets if they wanted to be successful fishermen in that era. And so after this, after this public uh, discourse from Jesus, he, he provides a personal invitation. And so he says to Peter there, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch or for a drop. And how does Peter respond to that request? This is his response. And if I'm, if I'm paraphrasing this, this, this would begin with an onomatopoeic sigh. Ugh, which you've heard, if you have children, you've heard more than once, right? And so Simon Peter, I envision him with this sigh, just head down, kicking the sand on the shore. No, I, I really don't want to do this. And this is his response. Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. We worked we, we labored, we gave our effort our, as much as we thought we could, and we didn't catch anything. We've toiled all the night and caught nothing. You know, sometimes recreational fishermen can just enjoy the occasion, the rhythm of casting and reeling. Sometimes that's fun. The relaxation that results from such an outing. Recreational fishermen can typically enjoy the process whether they catch any fish or not whether from the shore, from the bank, from from out there on a boat in the the middle of a lake, they can just enjoy as as recreation. And I think many would say who who go fishing and still never catch anything or not as, as, you know, maybe the limit that they would like to catch, the worst day of fishing is really still the best day of work. But fishing for a living, like what Peter and his his company, uh, his group, his company, uh, their fishing is, is for a living. It's very different. And as a commercial fisherman like Peter, depending on fishing for his livelihood, Peter's response to Jesus emphasizes the serious efforts to catch fish. I toiled. We toiled. We didn't get anything. It's not like we just went out there, casted a line once or twice, and then came back to shore. No, we were busy. We gave effort. Uh, a lot of bodily effort to throw those nets overboard and to reel them back in. Peter says, we labored and toiled all the night. We didn't catch anything. In other words, Peter says that if there were any fish in the water, Jesus, we would have found them, we would have caught them. He says, we worked for many hours and still didn't catch anything. So perhaps Peter had experienced this kind of failure before. And when I read this verse, I often think about that. How many times did Peter and his fellow fishermen go out onto that lake and literally work, sweat, and, and, and yield nothing? How many times? And so that's the sense that I, that I get when I, when I read this and when I think about his response to Jesus, that maybe he's experienced this kind of failure before. He knows from personal experience, this is our effort, it didn't do anything, 
we're, we're, there's no reason to go back out there, Jesus, because we've made all the effort that we can. And so based on his previous experiences, Peter reasons returning to the same spot where he didn't catch any fish earlier was just going to be a waste of time. And so we are, therefore, not to put our own past experience in the way of obedience to our Lord's will, but to say to him, nevertheless, however costly this duty may prove to be, at your command I'll let down the net and do so ever what you bid me to do. But, you know, sometimes people get remarkably wise through their personal experience. They got it down to a T. They know how it's going to go down. And they think they, think they do. Sometimes we, we shall have to say, nevertheless, at your word, when the command of Christ seems contrary to our own experience. Peter undoubtedly had done more fishing than Jesus. And he knew that the time for fishing was not the heat of the day, but the cool of the night when he was out there earlier. Peter had no logical reason to agree with Jesus' plans to let down the nets again. Moving the boat to deeper water and dropping the nets seems like a simple task, though. However, the task probably would have taken a lot of effort for no foreseeable gain. So why would Peter be inclined to listen to fishing advice from a carpenter's son? He says, at your word, I'll let down the net. When we consider that expression, at your word, he's he's indicating he's going to rely on, on what Jesus is saying. On the ground of your word, Jesus and stands as the sole reason for Peter's obedience to that command. But you know, some people say if your heart's not in it, you shouldn't do it. Think about that for just a moment. You've probably heard that expression. You might have used that expression. If your heart's not in it, it's not worth doing. And and at first, I think the statement sounds reasonable. It sounds rational. But why is this thought process incompatible with obedience to Christ? We can turn over to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17 and verse 9, and read there that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So I believe God does reward our obedience if we will go ahead and do what he has told us to do. We'll see he's telling this, he's telling Peter this, and he tells us this. He gives us these commands for our own benefit. And so when we obey in spite of our own objections, the heart will eventually follow that lead. We might consider the heart for the moment, that as the seat of the will, we must align our will with the will of God. We read over in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6 and verse number 6, the Bible says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That should be our attitude. That should be our mindset. That should be our motivation. Jesus has commanded. God has commanded. He's asked something of us. Let's do it, and let's do it from the heart. You know, I see these all the time, T-shirts that read this. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I've seen this on church signs. You probably have too, driving down the road. Uh, I've seen this like you see here on T-shirts. And if you look at that, we're, we're invited to agree with that. There's really nothing wrong with that. But brethren, if God said it, that settles it whether I believe it or not. We need a reverence for God's word. We need a reverence from God, for God's word from our hearts. That's the foundation of true discipleship. So this morning, do you believe what God says? Do you believe what Jesus says? And more than that, are you willing to follow Jesus 
despite what others say or despite what the culture promotes. And you know, as well as I, we're facing increasing hostility against our beliefs, against Christianity. Are you willing to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And so many of us would say, oh yeah, do a Wade Phillips fist pump, we're ready to rock and roll. And I know what Jesus says, but... And then we push back a little bit. And why? Because the Word of God is not popular. Because the Word of God alone has has always been enough for the true follower. You know, with God's Word, Noah builds a big boat. Right? We read about that in the Old Testament. At God's Word, Abraham leaves his country and people and goes to a strange land. Another journey. I know what Jesus says, but... And so we start making excuses. We start holding on to other aspects. We, we know what Jesus says. We know what he commands. We know what he wants from us. We really want to follow Jesus, but I also really want to do my own thing. I really want to have just a little me time. I want to have my own time apart from that. I just want to break from that for, for just a little while. I know what Jesus says, but... <clears throat> I want us to see the differences here in these two verses, verse 1 and verse 5 of our text this morning. The differences in the term word that is used in this passage. And so we see here in the very first verse, the word word forms the subject matter of teaching of discourse. right? But in in verse number 5, that word is very different. It means something else. When Peter says that your word... Peter is saying at your command. I'm not ready for another discourse from you, Jesus. Peter says in verse 5 at your word, at your command, at your exhortation, at your instruction, at your admonition, I will do this. And some people might really argue that. They say, well, yeah, that's all well and good to have Jesus. I want Jesus. What can Jesus do for me? But they, they object to a lot of what they think we have to do as Christians. Well, Uh, Many people argue that obedience to God's commands are just too burdensome. And they'll point to a verse like Matthew 23 and verse 4 that reads, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And then they ran about a, a lengthy story where they've seen Christians who demonstrate their Christianity in this way. They argue that obedience to God's commands are just too burdensome. So... I, 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 really, I really can't latch hold of Jesus right now. But I want us to see what the Bible says in 1 John 5 in the first three verses. The Bible says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Verse number 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. And the clincher verse right there in verse number 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. And that's what I would say to my worldly friends who, who say, well, it's just too much. Uh, you're Too many boxes to check off. Too many things that I need to do. And so as we consider this story. Peter has a long way to go. We know the story of Peter, but he has a long way to go, certainly in this text. 
And so is it going to be fear that, that leads him, that guides him? Is it going to be faith that motivates him? Is it going to be a little bit of both? We see this play out in these two verses. The Bible says here in verse number 8 of Luke 5, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And you know what's happened, right? The big catch of fish. Jesus is there. Peter is there. He's astonished. The others are astonished. And this is what Peter says. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished in all that were with him at the draught of the fishes which they had taken. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You know, Peter wasn't just wowed. Peter wasn't just, you know, we look at the word astonished and think, okay, yeah, they were, they were amazed. Fill in the blank with whatever adjective you like. He wasn't just astonished. He was terrified. Jesus was really in control. And Peter here is certainly convinced of the power of Jesus. The implication was clear. Jesus is God and Peter is in the presence of God. It's a teachable moment for Peter. Adam Clark says Peter was fully convinced that this draw to fish was a miraculous one and that God himself had particularly interfered in this matter whose presence and power he reverenced in the person of Jesus. But as he felt himself a sinner, he was afraid the divine purity of Christ could not possibly endure him, therefore he wished for a separation from that power which he was afraid might break forth and consume him. You know, there are some who claim a respect for God's word, but they don't see themselves as sinners before a holy God. And this is a situation where Peter comes to the realization, I'm a sinner. I have many, many problems. I have a lot of baggage. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You know, in our world today, I think God is viewed much of the time as a doting grandfather who wants to bounce people around on his knee and, and whisper sweet nothings in their ear, someone who would never discipline him. There are a lot of people who approach that uh, in that way. Do you fear the holy God whom you serve? We might consider these three verses here. When we consider what motivates us, what's motivating Peter, what's Peter learning here? How is he developing as a disciple? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10 and verse number 28, And do not fear them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 4 tells us, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And so, yes, even though Peter was a sinful man in the presence of a holy God, Jesus was not seeking to destroy him. And we have this encouragement in our story today. He had Peter's best interests at heart, and he has our best interests at heart. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so again, Peter is called upon to trust in the words of Jesus, not to be afraid. And so a true disciple then must believe what Jesus says about mercy and grace and forgiveness. God is working on his behalf. We see this illustrated this morning. God is working on your behalf. He's worked on my behalf. And how does Peter respond to all of this? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
You know, some people might argue that obedience to God's commands is legalistic. It's dogmatic. They chalk everything into a category of works and say, see, you've got to do all this in order to, to earn your way into heaven. And the Pharisees, of course, we can go back to Matthew and look at, at everything that Jesus says about the Pharisees and how legalistic they were in setting up their own rules and building a metaphorical wall around the Mosaical Law so that they didn't break the Mosaical Law. They were not being led and controlled by the Spirit of God. They certainly became legalistic by obeying their own set of rules and laws. And really, they're blind to the obedience that God requires. And so Jesus refers to these Pharisees with the description blind in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, and verse number 24. Brethren, obedience to the commandments of God is not legalism. It's not dogmatic. However, legalism is obedience to the commandments of men. Jesus says in Luke chapter 5 and verse 10, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. That'd be a great place to stop right there, wouldn't it? That sounds like the ending of a wonderful story where, wow, that's, that's the, the response that Jesus is looking for, really, right? Jesus elicited that response. He wants them to forsake all. He wants them to put aside all their baggage. He wants, he wants them to relinquish themselves, forsake all. That includes yourself, Peter. And so the Bible says here in verse number 11, when they brought their ships back to land, they forsook all and followed him. I want to bring before your consideration this morning a couple of verses from the book of Luke, chapter number 14, and you'll see them on the the, uh, screen in front of you there. Jesus, in the book of Luke, chapter 14, says three different times that some people cannot be his disciples. There's a popular notion that anyone can be Jesus' disciple on his or her own terms. You've probably heard those expressions. There's a a wide array of terminology that people use. Jesus accepts me for who I am. Well, initially, yes, but he's wanting you to change. He's looking for a transformation. And the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is filled with verse after verse that demonstrates the need for that transformation. And in Luke chapter 14, we see here in verse number 26, if any man come to me, this is Jesus talking. Are you listening to the voice of the chief shepherd this morning? If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, you see there, Azul? He's telling us we have to hate people. That's a contradiction. Not when you actually study that word hate and you realize you come to the understanding that it doesn't mean hate in the 21st century terminology. It means to love less. And I think that bears out here in verse number 26. Jesus is saying, you, everything must be set aside. Jesus has to come first in my life. My sweet bride sitting in the audience today is my 9.9. But Jesus is my perfect 10. That's what Jesus is looking for from you this morning. In this life, Jesus said, if you don't do this, yea, and hate your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. 
Jesus has to come before our family. Jesus has to come before any relationship. Jesus has to come before me. I've got to remove my egocentricity, and I've got to take on Christ. He's got to be my Lord and Master. And we read also, a verse later, Jesus says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's different. That's different from what he said in verse 26. This is... This is the condition right here. Jesus says, this is what I'm looking for from you. This is what I'm after. Jesus bore his own cross, literally and metaphorically, in that journey that took him to Calvary, where he died at Golgotha's Hill, and finally after his resurrection, he ascended back into heaven. Jesus is not asking us to do something that he himself was not willing to do. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The true disciple, then, brethren, must be willing to suffer and die just as Jesus did. Maybe metaphorically, but still suffer and die. Put myself to death daily, hourly, minute by minute if need be, to take on Christ. Jesus' cross does not represent unintentional death or a miscarriage of justice. Oh, no. It represents the voluntary acceptance of death for the cause of God. And that's what he's asking us to do. Do it deliberately. Do it purposefully. Do it intentionally. Not every disciple will have to die because of their faith in Christ, but every disciple must be willing to die. Certainly die to self. And then in the last section, the last verse of this chapter, Luke chapter 14, the last part anyway, in verse number 33, Jesus said, So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, He cannot be my disciple. What have you forsaken for Jesus? What have I given up for Jesus? What have I set aside for the cause of Christ? We live in, despite your misgivings of this great nation, we live in arguably the freest society in all of history on planet Earth. And we have a lot of freedom to come and go and do as we please. We have a lot of blessings from our Father with all these freedoms. What have I forsaken, Zoel Kelly, what have I forsaken for Jesus in my life? Surely every disciple should be able to do something, list something that you have given up, that he or she has given up. Maybe it was a bad habit. Maybe it was a relationship that didn't pursue with Jesus. Maybe it was a time slot. Maybe it was an activity. What did Peter and John and James give up? The Bible says they forsook all. And brethren, that's the challenge before us. If we are going to grow as disciples, if we are going to be the mouthpieces for God in this world, in this century, we, I have to grow. You have to grow. We have to put on Christ the way he wants to be put on. We have to put him first in all things. If we're going to be effective as disciple makers and disciple seekers in this life, as we've talked so much about, this is what we need to do. And so the question then is also for us, would we really leave those nets? Would we really forsake all for Jesus and for the cause of Christ? Do we accept the authority of Christ's word? We read over in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. There are many people who refuse to go to Jesus. 
We'll see that in the story of the rich young ruler. He, w- he runs to Jesus, literally, kneels, literally, and walks away. Jesus said, and you will not come to me that you might have life. What was the question the rich young ruler asked Jesus? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you won't come to me. You want you. John chapter 6 and verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Colossians 3 and 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Do we accept the authority of the word of Christ in our lives today? You know, we look at this verse, there's so much we could extract from this one verse. Nevertheless is a strong word. It's an important word in the text. It really does define the depth of Peter's faith. Nevertheless, I know from personal experience, Jesus, this is going to be a waste. But, nevertheless, however, let's do it. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And so this, this does express Peter's faith in many ways. But he doesn't agree. This nevertheless at thy word is just, okay, let's go out there again. I, I really believe in my heart of hearts that Peter does not, this is my own opinion, that Peter doesn't think this is going to be worth the time. It's not going to be worth the effort. But because this great teacher, he calls master, that he's heard about, maybe, maybe he knows something that I don't. I want to respect him. I'm doing this because he's asking. So nevertheless, I'm going to go out there. So he's got some faith maybe, but it's not really great faith. He's got a ways to go in his growth and his development. He's going to obey. He's going to go out there, but he's got some work to do. Brethren, at times we may not want to do Christ's commands. However, we must come to the same place that Peter did. We need to decide that regardless of how I feel about a certain matter, if the Lord has commanded it, then I need to do it. So we're talking this morning about going from self to surrender. And of course, hopefully what's coming through this morning is the the meaning behind all this. We're, We're removing ourselves and surrendering to Jesus Christ. So we do need a reverence for God's word. We need a proper fear of of Christ's authority, a reverence, if you will. We need to surrender to his will. We need to hope in Jesus' promises. I want to bring before your consideration that even Jesus himself submitted, that he surrendered to the will of God. I want to invite your attention to the book of Matthew, chapter number 26, in the 39th verse. This is what the Bible says about Jesus on his journey. He's facing the cross, a cruel death. And this is what the Bible says about him here. In verse number 39 of Matthew 26, And he, this is of Jesus, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus, both man, both human, and divine. And that human side is tugging at him. He knows the pain and the anguish and the agony that he's going to have to endure for my sin and for your sin. And initially, his human nature doesn't want to comply if there's any other possibility, if there's any other way. 
And then finally, in that same verse, Jesus says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Even Jesus removed his own will for the will of God. We need to develop this same mindset. We read in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 8 that though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus learned. Jesus went on a journey, both literally and metaphorically. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. The servant is not greater than his Lord, the Bible says. We need to be like Jesus. We need to learn the way Jesus learned. Sometimes that means suffering a little bit. As much as we despise suffering, as much as we don't want to deal with suffering, or watch as somebody else does, sometimes we have to endure some of that in this life. Jesus teaches us that obedience to the Word of God, to the things that we suffer sometimes, causes us to grow our faith, our relationship with Jesus and with God. And we need to develop that same mindset. It's a mindset that does what the Lord asks, regardless of how I feel about it on a personal level. Now, in closing this morning, we're going to sing a song here in just a minute. And the invitation, brethren, is to all of us here today. And as we're closing, I want us to consider something that happens in this passage that we've not yet touched on. Luke chapter 5 and verse number 4. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon. This is Jesus talking, by the way. Jesus says, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drop. If you go to the internet right now, you're going to find numerous sermons, Uh, homilies, whatever you're looking for about launching out into the deep. And so many people place emphasis on that. Just just go. Just risk it. Right? Just, Just put caution to the wind, launch out into the deep. And so there's a lot we could say about that. But that's not all Jesus said here. Jesus tells Peter, let down your nets, Peter. Let down your nets. What does Peter do? Jesus said, let down your net. Don't you think Jesus knew the outcome? Don't you think Jesus knew what he was doing? Don't you think Jesus knows what he's asking of Peter? And don't you think Jesus knows what he's asking of us? Jesus says, let down your nets, plural. The Bible says man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. And that one word says a lot to us today. That word nets, it's plural. What does Peter do? Launch your nets, Peter. Peter, he goes out there. And he says, nevertheless, at your word, sure, Jesus, I will let down my net. One. Don't you think Jesus knew the outcome? What would have been different had Peter and the others let down all their nets? How much more would they have had than what they were struggling to deal with and pull into their ship? I often think about that. I want you to think about that this morning. What is the barrier that is preventing us from following in the footsteps of Jesus? What is the net in my life that's holding me back? What's the one thing that I need to remove so that I can have a closer relationship with my God and with my Savior? Simon lets down one. You know he had many. Jesus said, let down your nets. And I take that as a metaphor in the 21st century. Remove those barriers. Remove those obstacles. Remove those problems. We put a lot of stuff in our own way, and then we hold on to that. 
And the whole point this morning is letting go of that. We need to surrender ourselves to the great master. Let down your nets. If you're here this morning and you're holding back, I would ask you why. Why are you holding back? We are ready to love you. We are ready to love on you. We're ready to encourage you. If you're not a Christian, why not today? Why not today? If you are a Christian and you know you've been holding back, you know you've got some some things to remove out of your life and you need some help, we'll be glad to pray with you and for you. Please come forward. Sit on the front row. Someone will assist you as we stand and as we sing.